a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about some of the scriptures that talk about the falling away of the church and restoration. One of the last we talked about was in Paul's message to the Thessalonians about the falling away. That's where we get that specific phrase. It's biblical to say the church fell away. He said there must come a falling away. In the book of Revelation, there is a pretty strong and very clear series of statements that describe what happened that the church fell away in very symbolic language. Probably one of the clearest statements in the book of Revelation that described that church and the condition it was in and the conflict that was going on that caused some of the conditions that followed, why the church would need to be restored, is in the 12th chapter of Revelation. I'm not going to go through that verse by verse because we've done it before. We can do it again sometime, but it hasn't been that long ago we went through it. I'm going to come back to that. There's at least two different women in the book of Revelation. I'm talking about symbolic women where it describes a woman, and it's clearly more than just one person it's talking about, just some individual person of feminine gender. It's obviously talking about something on a bigger scale than that. Give me some examples of where these two women are described in the book of Revelation that I'm talking about. This is important to the subject of the falling away and the restoration of the church, and you'll see that when you see how different these two women are. And when you study this word, and we're going to talk about it possibly if the Lord inspires the wilderness. I want you to hold on to that word in your mind, the wilderness. Now that gave you a big clue as to some of the locations, if you know your Bible well. Where in the book of Revelation are these women described? There's two chapters you should come up with pretty quick that one of them talks a lot about one of the women, one of them talks a lot about the other. One of them brought forth a man-child. One of them brought forth a Brother Stephen said. What chapter of Revelation is that in? That's the 12th chapter. There's a woman described in the 12th chapter of the book of Revelation, we'll come back to that, that brought forth a man-child. This woman is clearly described in very favorable language. This is not something that represents something evil or unrighteous or ungodly. This is a powerful picture in the 12th chapter of the book of Revelation that I will come back to. I want to talk about that possibly. Somebody said, thank you. The 17th chapter is the other woman. Now, it's not the only chapter she's in, but that is the chapter I was looking for. The 17th chapter, there is a woman on the back of a scarlet-colored beast, isn't there? Now, those are not the same woman. The woman in the 12th chapter is not the same woman in the 17th chapter. They are very different women. And again, I want to stress, they're not individual females. They represent something. If we go through the 17th and 18th chapters sometime, which I've talked about doing, and we might as we follow the leading of the Spirit through this subject, you're going to see that this represents something on a much larger scale than one person. This is a whole system of some kind, a whole religious group. It's similar to what you think about when you think about the church or a church. Sometimes a church can be symbolized by a woman. Let me refine the definition down even more than that. The word church can be misleading because we think of it in kind of a new covenant sense. Even though that word was used for Israel, Stephen referred to Israel in the wilderness in the seventh chapter of Acts as the church in the wilderness. But I don't want to confuse you with that language, so let's make it even simpler. A group of people with whom God is wanting to have relationship. Not just one person, but a group. Now, one person can be the church, but the church is representative of a group of people. There was a group of people in the Old Testament God wanted to be in relationship, Israel, a whole nation. She and I said that intentionally, is referred to in feminine terms quite often in the Old Testament in prophetic language. God refers to Israel as his wife. Sometimes when he's talking about different parts of Israel, like Judah and Israel, after they were separated, he refers to them as two different women that were the daughters of a certain mother. Now, the mother was the original nation of Israel. 
There are several prophecies where Israel is referred to as a woman. Several prophecies where Israel, after it broke up into the northern and southern tribes, is referred to as two different women. In very negative connotations, because those nations had broken relationship with the Lord through idolatry and other things. But that's an example of how a woman can represent a group of people that God is intended to be in relationship with. And it certainly represents the same thing in the New Covenant. You notice that the purest product of the church is referred to as the bride of Christ, isn't it? That's a feminine element. It doesn't mean everybody in it is female. In fact, everybody in it is definitely not female. There are both males and females that have been or will be a part of the bride of Jesus Christ. There is no gender distinction in terms of who can become a part of the bride of Jesus Christ. There's no racial distinction in terms of who can become a part of the bride of Jesus Christ. There is a measure, though, that you have to measure up to if you're going to be a part of the bride of Christ. But the bride of Christ is feminine language, isn't it? Just like the Lord God's bride in the Old Testament, Israel, was feminine language, wasn't it? So there's two women. Both chapters that I was looking for you gave me here just a few minutes ago. Revelation 12 describes one of those two women. Revelation 17 describes the other, and on into the 18th chapter for that matter. Those two women represent two different groups. It's interesting, when you look at the passages, especially in Revelation 12 and Revelation 17, both of these ladies, I don't want to call them ladies, that's too much of a compliment for one of them. Both of these women, one's a lady for certain, both of these women are described as being in the wilderness. You know that? In the 12th chapter, it's very obvious. A couple different verses say that she was going to go into the wilderness two different times in that 12th chapter. How many verses are in the 12th chapter? 17, maybe? In those 17 verses in the 12th chapter, there's two distinct places. It talks about that woman going into the wilderness. They're talking about the same thing, you know. There's repetition in the 12th chapter. If we come back to it, I'll explain what I mean. But there's a little bit of overlap. The first part of the 12th chapter and the last part of the 12th chapter, you have to watch my hands. If this is the first part, if I'm holding these blocks of scriptures, and this is the second part, I've got one hand above the other, They don't work like that. It it isn't a perfect chronologically seamless story. They overlap. So there's a place at which the first part of that chapter hits its peak, and then it begins to repeat some of the events that it just talked about with a little bit more detail. That's exactly what happens in the first and second chapter of Genesis, you know. In the first chapter, it gives you a general overview of the creation. In the second chapter, it tells you some details of how the man and the woman were created, doesn't it? That's what's going on in the 12th chapter. Some of that is an overlap. I'll come back to it. I don't want to get sidetracked into it right here. But you stop at a certain verse, and then it starts talking about the woman going to the wilderness again, as if it's a second time. It's not a second time. Now it's telling you from a little bit different perspective the same thing it just told you a few verses before. But we'll come back to that. That's the 12th chapter. That woman goes into the wilderness. She goes into the wilderness, and it looks like God is protecting her by letting her go into the wilderness. Isn't that interesting? We're going to come back to it. I'm not just going to graze over it. In the 17th chapter of Revelation, how does that chapter start? Somebody give me a word or two. And there came one of the seven angels. One of the seven angels has had one of the seven vials. Had, uh, had the seven vials. Yeah. He talked with me. And he said what? Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that says upon many walls. This, and I'm going to, that's all right, Brother Ron's reading it literally as the King James translates it. For the sake of our modern ears. I'm going to use the other word that's used for in this chapter, harlot, which doesn't sound nearly as strong to us as the other word, does it? It's not that I don't know what the words are, right? But those words mean the same thing. I'm going to use harlot because we use it so seldom in our culture, it isn't as strong. 
but I want you to realize how serious it is. It's just as serious as the other words. This angel is getting ready to show John the judgment that's going to fall on this harlot. Go ahead, Brother Ron. Read a couple more verses there. Well, by the way, we're going to come back to Revelation 17 sometime and really go through it in a little more detail. She sits upon many waters. Now notice that she sits upon many waters. Do not forget that because that is a very important statement that will tie you into some Old Testament statements to prove who she is. With whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication... And the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk by the wine of her fornication. Right. Is that right? Right. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. Where did he carry John away to? Wilderness. Into the wilderness. He carried John away in the spirit into the wilderness. And there in the wilderness, John saw... A woman set upon a scarlet-colored beast... Having seven beast. heads, full of the names of blasphemy, yes... Having seven heads and ten horns. Yes. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of the abominations and filthiness of her fornication. She had a lot of riches. She had a lot of power. A lot of regalia in terms of her wealth and material elements, as well as her position. Notice she's sitting on the back of this scarlet colored beast, though. And we're going to go into detail on this another time. That scarlet-colored beast is the Roman Empire. There is nothing else it could be. This makes it very simple to narrow down who the woman is because there is only one religious group of people who entered into a relationship with the Roman Empire, and that is the Roman Church. Notice she's called a harlot. A harlot is somebody who is selling her favor, and usually when it's used in the context, the way it's being used here in the 17th chapter of Revelation, when we go through that chapter in more detail, and we'll talk about that word and how the Bible uses it, but often God uses that kind of language for somebody that should have been in a relationship with their husband. And it isn't just somebody that's a single person. It's somebody that should have already been in a proper relationship and is out entering into relationships with other people. That's important to understand. It's not always the case when you use that word, but when it's used spiritually, that's often the case, is that it's talking about somebody that already was in a relationship that is breaking the fidelity of that relationship by adulterating themselves. That'll help you when you're thinking about this chapter, when we get into more detail, because it'll really help to figure out who she is. Listen, if God's going to call her a harlot, and she's on the back of a scarlet-colored beast, and this beast has seven heads and ten horns, by the way, the fact that it has seven heads is referring to the fact that it's the seventh kingdom. Those heads represent those kingdoms going all the way back. We talked about this in one of our previous classes we had, going all the way back to Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome. Now, Rome is the sixth head. The reason it has seven heads is because now you've got a new kind of Roman Empire. It used to be a pagan Roman Empire. Now it's a pseudo-Christian Roman Empire. That places in time where this woman is at. This is a woman in relationship with that power of that day. And that power was the Roman Empire. That is only one church. It's a church that had several splits. It wasn't one single universal church through all its history, but it started out as one single church and divided as the empire divided into an Eastern and a Western church, a Roman Catholic church, and a Greek Orthodox church. That's where those two churches originated. They were one church. Do you realize when Nebuchadnezzar had his vision that Daniel defined? This is one of the most interesting things about this vision. You realize all through that vision, there is significance even to the structure of that image. Not just the materials it's made out of. A head of gold that he said was Babylon. Do you realize when it gets down to Persia, it's the shoulders and the chest, which are two parts, aren't they? There are two parts that are one part. 
You have two sides to your chest, two arms and shoulders, right? You get down to that part, it's Persia. But do you realize Persia was made up of two kingdoms, Medes and the Persians? Now you get down to the waist, now you're back to one part again, and you're getting down to Greece. Now you get down to the hips, you start as one part at the hips. Think how absolutely precise God was. Your hips start as one part, but they split off into two legs, don't they? That's the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire started as one single empire. It split off into the Eastern and the Western empires. They, for a long time, were together, but they slowly grew further apart till you get down to the iron and the clay feet. But there was a point at which that Roman Empire split off into the two sections, and those two sections split off as you get further down the legs, so to speak, towards the bottom. It went from the sixth beast, that's the Roman Empire, down into the seventh beast, that's the lower part of the legs, And then it's going to end up being iron and clay in those feet. Notice there's 10 toes on a foot, and you realize, not on a foot, you'd have a real strange-looking foot, wouldn't you? (laughs) There's 10 toes on two feet, all right? Five on each. When you get down to those 10 toes, now if you're going to look at the kingdoms in prophecy, the image isn't representing Egypt and Assyria. It's starting with the kingdom Daniel was a part of. He told Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold, didn't he? So starting with Babylon. So that's only showing us from the third beastly power down to the seventh and eighth. But notice when you get down to the sixth and seventh, where it's the Roman Empire and the pagan Roman Empire and then the pseudo-Christian Roman Empire, it splits off into two sections, doesn't it? Then when you get down to the toes, you've got toes and feet that are made up of iron and clay. Now, that's another subject. We can go into that in a great amount of detail. But when you get down to that, you realize that each one of those has a higher gravitational weight than the next. The topmost part has the highest gravitational weight, which means technically it's heaviest at the top and it gets lighter as it goes down. So it's top heavy, that image is, isn't it? And it'd be easy to break it. As you see, even in our picture, we've got here on the wall of the image that the stone is getting ready to strike the feet of that image. Well, that isn't going to be a hard thing to do. It's a brittle set of materials in the feet and it's top heavy. So when it hits that, it's going down. It just takes the right tactical strike to take it down. Now that would lead us into a whole night or two talking about the image and the kingdoms and we can do that sometime as well. But what I want you to get out of that is the fact that the sixth kingdom and there's several different passages you got to go to. The seventh chapter of Daniel, the early chapters of Daniel, book of Revelation to tie all these together. The 17th chapter of Revelation we were just talking about talks about how there had been five kingdoms and now they were in the sixth. The sixth is present. That tells you what it was. It was Rome. And he said the seventh is yet to come. You know why it was yet to come? The exact language that was used in Thessalonians when Paul said there must come a falling away first. Right now it's being held back. Something's holding it back. You know what's holding it back? Men like John were not going to allow the church to adulterate itself with the Roman Empire. So the seventh could not come until the apostolic, again, that's not the denominational statement. I'm talking about the government that was made up of the apostles. That apostolic authority was removed. When Christ's authority working through the apostles, when they were all martyred off, the window opened for all kinds of other things to come in because that authority that goes along with the office of an apostle was just not present. They like to claim that they were the heirs of the apostles. That church says that its first bishop was Peter. There's absolutely no historical evidence for that, you know. The reason they claim that is because Peter's high position among the apostles, that would let them have a link to saying they go back to him, but that's not a legitimate claim. So let's come back to these two women. This woman is on a scarlet-colored beast in the seventh chapter with seven heads and ten horns. Ten horns, and notice there's ten toes on the foot of the image. Now see, once you get down to the seventh beast, that's the bottom of the legs is the seventh beast. 
That was what would come after John was gone. That would be that pseudo-Christian Roman Empire. It was the church and the state combined into one amalgamated mess. That's what the picture is of the woman on the back of the scarlet-colored beast. It's a church that is on the back of that Roman Empire. Not running from the beast, riding it. Not fighting the beast, riding it. That is a very different thing, isn't it? And that's never where the church was intended to be. So there's two different women we can see in the book of Revelation. Both of these women are in the wilderness, but they're not the same woman in the wilderness, are they? We have to figure out what the wilderness represents, though, don't we? Do you think that just means both of these churches were out in the desert somewhere? That's not what it means. The wilderness is a symbolic thing, just like the fact that these are women is a symbolic thing. When somebody is in a wilderness state... A wilderness condition, that means they're in a place where certain things are not easily accessible. What would you not easily be able to get to in a desert? Water. Water. A food supply that's a good, healthy, steady food supply. Food and water are going to be much more challenging. The environment around you is going to be much more dangerous and deadly to you for a lot of reasons. If you're talking about a desert, the heat and other conditions will be dangerous. If you're talking about a wilderness in terms of a place where there's no civilization, you're going to have wild beasts. All those things can be found in a wilderness. Now, spiritualize that because this is spiritualized. Again, this is not talking about just the fact that there was a woman out in the desert somewhere. No, this is talking about a church in a dry spiritual state, in a state where there wasn't spiritual life, and there were a lot of wild beasts, and there wasn't a source of water. The Holy Spirit is often symbolized by water. There wasn't a source of the Holy Spirit readily available. It took some serious digging and looking to even be able to touch the Holy Spirit in that era of the church. There wasn't a ready source of clean food. You know the kind of animals that dwell in the desert were unclean animals? Many of them. There wasn't a good source of clean food. There wasn't a good source of clean water. If you could find water at all. And it was dry and it was a weary land to use some of the prophetic statements that parallel that. And God allowed both of those women to go into the wilderness. Isn't that strange? The difference is one of those women will never come out of the wilderness. And one of those women is coming out. That's the difference. One will never come out. One will come out. The one that will never come out, if this isn't too many coming outs in one sentence, people have to come out of her if they want to come out. The one that's never coming out of the wilderness, that false church, The only way somebody will ever get out of the wilderness is if they come out of her. That's what the whole message is in this 18th chapter of Revelation when it's talking about come out of her, my people. Because if you don't come out of her, you're never coming out of the wilderness. You're going to die in the wilderness if you don't come out of her. Because she's going to die in the wilderness. And if you stay with her, you're going to die with her. So that's important to understand. These two different women, the major distinction, they're both in the wilderness in Revelation, but the major distinction is one is going to come out. And I'll show you biblically the evidence for the fact that she's going to come out. There's a couple different points for why, not only in the 12th chapter of Revelation, but there's one to two different beautiful statements in the Song of Solomon that forcibly make this point, that there's a woman that's going to come out of the wilderness. But let me define this a little bit more before I go there. These are different churches, as I said. These women represent different churches, different religious groups. In the 12th chapter of Revelation, that woman was the original early church, the original woman. That woman had two daughters. There is a story in the Bible that describes this pretty well. It's a historical story of a woman who had two daughters. One daughter was faithful to her, and one daughter did not remain faithful to her. And it's a beautiful parallel picture to exactly what's going on here. 
Now listen, before we go there, remember, there was to begin with one church. One church, right? There weren't two churches in the upper room. There was one church. But once you get to the book of Revelation, which is a picture of things that are going to happen, by the way, many of the things in the book of Revelation are things that are going to happen after John's passing. The Lord's showing him things that are present, but he's also showing him things to come, isn't he? What's going on in the 12th chapter of the book of Revelation is a picture of some things that were going on in John's day and after John's day. In John's day, that church was that woman that was clothed with the sun, standing upon the moon, and upon her head was a crown of 12 stars. John was one of the 12 stars. Those 12 stars on the head of that woman in Revelation 12 represented that apostolic government of that church. John was one of those apostles, wasn't he, that were representing that government. She was standing on the moon. It said their feet were on the moon. That means the foundation of her beliefs was the old covenant. The moon is the old covenant. That doesn't mean she was still practicing the old covenant. It means that's where the truth originated, was out of the old covenant. There was no New Testament before the Old Testament. The Old Testament's what it's all built on. And then she was clothed with the sun, covered by the glory of the New Testament, the new covenant. That is the woman. That was that single church. But by the time she goes into the wilderness, she's got two daughters. One of them is the woman in the wilderness in the 17th chapter. One is the woman in the wilderness in the 12th chapter, who's the same woman, but you might say it's the daughter of the woman. There's a reason I'm saying that. When you look at the story of Ruth and Naomi, you see a beautiful parallel picture of this. That was a literal historical story, but as it is so many times in the Bible, you'll find foreshadowing of future prophetic events in the stories of some of the people in the Bible. Joseph, as I've said many times, is one of the most powerful examples of this. You can go almost point by point through Joseph's life and see how Jesus fulfilled pictures that were things that happened in Joseph's life. Moses is an example in some ways. David is an example in some ways. Even Solomon in his early years is an example of some of that. Naomi and Ruth and Orpah are a powerful example of this. There was a woman who went into the wilderness. And when she got ready to come out of the wilderness, she had two daughters. They had married her sons, Ruth and Orpah. You realize Ruth and Orpah were both Gentile girls? Isn't that interesting? Considering that after the passing of the apostles, the church was essentially Gentile. There were almost no Jews left in the church by the time you get into the second century. Most of them had died or had been martyred or some had turned against the church because of the events of 70 AD. But once you get into the second century, you'll find very few people of Jewish bloodline. They're even talked about being a part of the church. It's almost entirely Gentile at that point. Isn't it interesting, the story of Ruth and Naomi? You've got Naomi, who is a Hebrew lady that goes out into Moab, and her two sons marry, and they die. And when she gets ready to go back to Bethlehem, because she hears that the famine is over, and there's now bread in Bethlehem, bread in the house of bread. That's what Bethlehem means, is house of bread. There's now food. They're, They're having plenty again. She wants to go back to Bethlehem. She's lost her husband. She's lost her son. She's got two daughters. You know the story of Ruth and Orpah, but maybe you haven't considered how much of a powerful, we've talked about it before, but if you haven't heard it, maybe you haven't considered how much of a powerful parallel is with exactly what happened with the church. Ruth was willing to go with Naomi no matter what it cost. She was all in. She was willing to die where Naomi died, to be a part of Naomi's people, to serve Naomi's God. Orpah went part of the way with Naomi. You know, she didn't just stop to begin with. Naomi tried to convince both girls And I've told you before when we talked about Ruth, I think it was a test. I don't think she really wanted them to stay. I think it was a test. If they're wanting to come with me, are they really serious? It's going to really cost something to come with me. Be a Gentile girl coming back to Israel. None of the men will want to marry you and you'll be kind of an outcast. It'll really cost something if you want to come back to Israel with me. 
I want to know you really mean it so that you don't go all the way back with me and then you turn around and leave. So she tested both those young ladies. The first time she basically told them, look, you need to go back and find another, a husband here. Don't come with me. I don't have any more sons. I'm not going to have any more sons. You go back. Both of them initially refused her and said, no, we're going with you. And they traveled a little way, still in Moab, by the way, didn't cross the border, traveled a little way. She stops, told him again, even more forcefully, you need to go back now. I feel like, I've told you this when we talked about Ruth, I feel like maybe they were right up to that borderline of leaving Moab when she stopped that second time to give them one more chance. That's when Ruth said her statement that's one of the most powerful statements in the Bible of a commitment. Talked about your people are going to be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I'll die. Where you're buried, I'll be buried. I'm all in. I'm going. You cannot tell me not to go. It doesn't matter what you say. It's kind of like Elisha with Elijah. When Elijah said, go on back. He said, I'm not going back. Wherever you go, I'm going. Orpah, even though she had said initially, I'll go with you, and she traveled a little while with her, Orpah turned back and went back. We have believed those two young ladies are a picture of these two women in the wilderness. One of them was faithful. One of them adulterated herself, went back to her pagan ways, whether you realize she was going back to her pagan ways or not. So Orpah, we have taken to represent, represent, they're real historical figures, but typologically, symbolically, to represent that false church, those that remain paganized. On the other hand, you've got Ruth, who was faithful and true to her mother. Now, there's a reason I'm saying mother and daughters, because that language is used in the Bible. They are two different daughters of the same mother. At least they both claim the same mother. But the only way you truly can claim that mother is if you're faithful to her, if you're a true daughter. You might argue that that's where I got my lineage from. I go back to that particular mother. But unless you're going to be faithful to your lineage, you probably shouldn't claim them. I doubt a parent is proud of a child that does terrible, abominable things. and You surely wouldn't be happy if they're doing horrible things and claiming to be your child. Song of Solomon, I mentioned, it's a sixth chapter, the eighth, ninth, and tenth verse, when it says there's three score queens, there's four score concubines, there's virgins without number. My dove, now, by the way, we believe typologically, this is Jesus speaking of his people, his bride, his bride to be. My dove, my undefiled, is one. She's the only one of her mother. She's the choice one of her that bear her. See, one of those girls is the proper heir. She's really her mother's daughter. She's been faithful to her mother. She has followed in her mother's footsteps, so to speak. That's the only one of her mother. You might argue that the other daughter never was a daughter. Or you might argue she was a daughter that entered into harlotry and didn't stay faithful to her mother's example. But Ruth and Orpah's story, if you really, I'm not going to read through it, but if you really want to dig into that, the context what I was talking about is in that first chapter of Ruth from the sixth verse on down to the very end of the chapter when Orpah turns back and Ruth keeps going with Naomi. And as I said, we believe that's a picture of what happened in the church. What started as a Jewish church, Gentiles became the next generation, so to speak, of that church. And those two Gentile ladies, one of those ladies chose to go faithfully on with her mother. You know, she was leaving the wilderness behind to do that. I'm talking about that metaphorically. She was leaving behind that paganized state and going back to Bethlehem. That's a picture of the church being restored. We're going back. That other girl was perfectly happy to stay in the culture and the environment that she had been raised in. So in that 17th chapter of Revelation, you see this harlot that's on the back of this beast in the wilderness. And there's some pretty distinct things in there. Notice some of the qualities of this woman. Not only is she on a scarlet-colored beast, 
It's full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. She's arrayed in purple and scarlet. We've talked about that before and how that was the colors of that Roman imperial ruling class. The emperor's color was primarily the purple, and the scarlet was primarily the color of the senate. And that church mimicked that, as I've talked about before, and took on those colors and used that as part of their regalia. Decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, I'm going to tell you, after the church adulterated itself with the Roman Empire, it steadily grew richer and richer and richer. In part because the Roman Empire gave it favor, gave it land, gave it buildings. I don't mean they took a pledge drive or raised their own money to do it. I mean the empire was giving them things. What happens when the state starts giving you things? What the state gives, the state can take away, right? When the state starts giving you things, it's going to be really hard not to go along with the state if you're afraid of losing what they're giving you. You know, the Roman Empire, whether they intended it this way or not, it was a trap for the church. I don't think initially the bishops that were involved in that day thought we're going to compromise ourselves. I think they thought, isn't this wonderful? The persecution has ended. Some of the very worst persecutions that occurred in the Roman Empire were right before it ended. Isn't that interesting? Some of the most horrific persecutions and some of the emperors that said they were going to wipe the Christian religion off the face of the earth and burn Bibles and everything else occurred right before Constantine rose and ended the persecutions. They just underwent some of the most dire persecution the church had ever gone through in its history, the Christian church, had ever gone through in its history, and now suddenly... The Roman Empire is extending an olive branch to him and saying, you can be at peace. We want to get behind you. We'll help you to get property. We'll give you buildings to have church in. It was a very ingenious step. And I don't think that was driven by just men thinking. I think there was a power behind that attempting to pollute the church. And it was a pretty intelligent way to do it. Persecution rose to a peak that had never been at before. And then suddenly there's an opportunity. Now you can have not just no more persecution. But instead of having to meet in caves and other places to have church hiding out, you're going to have a glorious big building and you're going to be honored and have all kinds of respect in the community and the emperor is going to consider you a great religious leader. Who wouldn't that wasn't a great and godly man not fall for that? And they did. Many of them did. And adulterated themselves with that condition. That is part of what it's talking about here. In this 17th chapter, it says she has a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornications. I've heard different views on what that represents symbolically, and I told you we'll go through this in more detail sometime individually, but I think that golden cup is right here. I think this is the golden cup. And they filled it with abominations, false interpretations, false doctrine that they just filled the teaching of the Word of God with, that golden cup. Upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. She was drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. There's an interesting statement in Jeremiah's prophecies, talking about Judah, that I think may have a parallel with some of the conditions the church went through. And that happens a lot in some of the prophetic language. You'll have a statement that's made about Israel when they fell into idolatry that matches perfectly with the condition the church was in when it fell into idolatry. It's in the second chapter of Jeremiah, around the, let's see, 31st verse. He says, O generation, see ye the word of the Lord. Have I been a wilderness unto Israel, a land of darkness? Wherefore say my people, we are lords, we will come no more unto thee. What kind of a statement is that? In other words, we are too big to need you, God. We're masters of our own destiny. We're lords. What do we need to come to the Lord God for? 
Can a maid forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Now when I say they've forgotten him, and I'm making a parallel with that church, you know how they forgot him? They put their leaders in the place of Christ. They put their bishops in the place of Christ. You'll forget God and Christ if you put men in their place. Because you're looking at a visible figurehead and putting all that authority and all that worship into that human individual or that office that is not intended for that person or the office that they hold. He said, why trimmest thou thy way to seek love? How's that for some archaic English language? Why trimmest thou thy way to seek love? Let's put that in modern language. You ever seen somebody primp in front of the mirror for a few hours getting ready for a date? Sometimes people do it just to get ready to go outside to get the mail. They're so afraid someone's going to see them, you know. That's what it means to trim your way to seek love. That means you're primping up. You're trying to look your very most attractive to draw the attention of... Spiritually speaking, that's a horrible thing. This woman that God is talking to was Judah. This was his wife. Why was she primping herself up to attract other men? That's basically what he was talking about, spiritually speaking. Therefore hast thou taught, also taught the wicked ones thy ways. Also in thy skirts is found the blood of the souls of poor innocents. What a strong statement. Do you realize that's exactly what the case was at that church? The blood of a lot of innocent people was in the skirts of that church. Listen to the way this goes on. I have not found it by secret search, but upon all these. Again, that's archaic language. This is what that's saying. I didn't have to go looking for the blood. It's all over you. You weren't hiding it. It's all over your garments. Now, listen, I'm making a parallel. This is Judah. But I believe there was a spiritual parallel with that church that fell away. She never has hidden the brutality she did. It's all through the history books. She tries to write it off. She tries to minimalize what it means. She tries to change the context and say, these people were really bad. We had to torture them. These people were really bad. We had to burn them at the stake. Have you ever studied what some of those people that were so terrible that that universal church not only executed them, but tormented and tortured them in horrifying ways? What justified that level of torture? What was it they believed that was so bad? You study it sometime. There's a number of books you can read, probably one of the most classic, and it's not a table-side bedtime story. Fox's Book of Martyrs, there's others that are far more exhaustive than that and get into a lot of the history. But the fact of the matter is, the brutality that that church carried out on people, if you study what they were doing it for, you'd be shocked by the crimes, in quotes, that allowed them to brutally torture people. Somebody denied some doctrine they taught and said, I don't agree with that doctrine? You know, as people were murdered over the doctrine of infant baptism, you realize that's where the Baptist originated was from the idea their forebears came from a Protestant group, the Anabaptists and others, who believed that it was not right to baptize infants because an infant couldn't possibly be converted. So how could they be baptized when baptism is the expression? Listen, this is what Peter said, the one they claim is the first pope, and he was not the first pope. What they one they claim is their forebear. Peter said that water baptism is the answer of a good conscience. What infant baby can have a good conscience? Now you might say, well, they're innocent. That's not what a good conscience means. That means your conscience has been cleared. You have to know you were guilty of something to be forgiven of before you can have a good conscience. That you're answering that now I've got a good conscience. Now I feel clear. I know that I've confessed my sins and God's forgiven. My conscience is clear. That's what it means. We say your conscience is clear. Peter said, the answer of a good conscience. That means I feel that my conscience is clear. A baby can't feel that their conscience is clear. They don't even know that they're doing anything wrong. 
Peter said water baptism is an answer of a good conscience. That means you do it because you feel my conscience is clear. I have entered into relationship with the Lord. Now I want to be baptized in water. A baby can't make that choice. But the church wanted to be able to baptize babies in water because the moment you baptize them in water, that officially made them a member of that church and taxable by the state. That was why it was such a nasty battle. Power over those people to add one more member to your church. Power over those people to control them financially and otherwise. You just study the history of it. It's very open if you choose to read about it. It's not some hidden history. That's why they did it. The Anabaptists and others that eventually became what the Baptist denominations were, believed you had to be an adult and you had to choose the Lord and then you were baptized in water. And of course, they believed in immersion, not just sprinkling or pouring water over the head of a child. You realize that there were Anabaptists who were brutally tortured and murdered for that alone? Just that. Just because they said, we do not agree with you. This is it, saints. This is all that caused them to be tortured and murdered. We do not agree with you that babies can be baptized. We believe you need to be a person who has enough maturity to be able to answer that their conscience is clear. That is worth getting tortured and brutalized over? It was to that church. Because they dared to question their supremacy. They dared to question that they were not the source of all truth. They dared to question any of their fiat. And that's just one of many examples. I always use the examples because it's the ones to me that are the most heartbreaking. It is shocking the amount of stories there are out there about brutal torture and brutal executions that were carried out for people simply because they had a piece of the Bible in their native tongue. That church was not about to let you have the Bible outside of their control. Some of whom all they did, they literally translated one scripture verse and quoted it. They didn't even have it on a piece of paper, quoted it in English and were burned alive for that. That was a diabolical church, an evil church. And she had the blood of the innocent all over her garment. She didn't hide it. She was proud of the fact that she'd shed all that blood, proud of the fact that anybody that stood against our mastery, our dominance, was destroyed, was persecuted. Jeremiah goes on again. Remember, I'm paralleling this. This is talking about Judah. But this is a very powerful parallel. I think it is intentionally a parallel of what happened to the church when it fell away. He said, I've not found it by secret search, but upon all these. Yet thou sayest, this is what she's saying, because I'm innocent. I'm innocent. I was just killing the bad folks. They shouldn't have quoted scripture. I told them they couldn't quote scripture. And I am the highest authority on the earth. How dare they quote scripture in English? I'm innocent. Why would I be guilty? Isn't that horrible? That's exactly what that church's mindset has been. I'm innocent. Surely his anger shall turn from me. Behold, I will plead with thee, because thou sayest I have not sinned. Now plead. There's times that word used in the King James Version. It doesn't mean it as gentle as it sounds. Sometimes God says, I'll plead with you. It's not pleading like, please straighten up. It's a much stronger word than that. That means I am going to bring judgment upon you. I'm going to let you know why you're going to be judged. Because thou sayest I have not sinned, why gaddest thou about so much to change thy way? That's like trimming yourself, you know, to look good. In other words, why are you making so many changes to appeal to the world, to appeal to the pagan powers? That's exactly what that church did. She made adjustments in doctrine and order to appeal to the people rather than to appeal to God, to appeal to those pagan powers. Thou also shalt be ashamed of Egypt, as thou was ashamed of Assyria. Thou shalt go forth from him, and thy hands upon thy head. For the Lord hath rejected thy confidences, and thou shalt not prosper in them. I'll give you another one, maybe ten chapters later in Jeremiah, before I move on to something else. 
I think this is an interesting statement. This is, again, talking about Judah, but it is a powerful parallel with a false church and a false ministry. In the 12th chapter, the 10th and 11th verse says, Many pastors, those are shepherds, that's spiritual leaders, have destroyed my vineyard. That's a pretty strong statement, don't you think? When God says many shepherds, spiritual leaders, is who he's talking about, have destroyed my vineyard. They've trodden my portion underfoot. You know what it means that they trod his portion underfoot? You'd have to understand the culture of the ancient East. When you walked on something, you were making a statement that it was yours. You owned it. That's why God said to Abraham, walk about the land. Put your claim on it. When you put your foot down on it, that's like saying I own it. It's like you might notice in some times when they would conquer a king, they put their foot on their neck. It was their way of saying, I own you. You're under my authority. You're submitted to me. When you put your foot on something, they were trotting. This is talking about religious leaders putting their foot down on God's people, putting their foot down on God's property and acting like they owned it. They've trodden my portion underfoot. They've made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. There's that word. They have made it desolate, and being desolate, it mourneth unto me. The whole land is made desolate because no man layeth it to heart. I'll give you a couple statements in Ezekiel. This one goes right along with the language in Revelation 17, Ezekiel 19, 10 to 14. This again, this is talking about Judah. But think how powerful the parallel is between the church that fell away and Judah that fell away. Thy mother is like a vine in thy blood planted by the waters. Remember I told you not to forget that phrase that she sits upon many waters? Listen to this. She was fruitful and full of branches by reason of many waters. And she had strong rods for the scepters of them that bear rule. In other words, a strong, dominant authority and power that she ruled over the people. And her stature was exalted among the thick branches, and she appeared in her height with the multitude of her branches. But she was plucked up in fury. She was cast down to the ground. And the east wind dried up her fruit. Her strong rods were broken and withered. The fire consumed them. Listen to this phrase. And now she is planted in the wilderness, in a dry and a thirsty ground. And fire has gone out of a rod of her branches, which has devoured her fruit, so she hath no strong rod to be a scepter to rule. This is a lamentation and shall be for a lamentation. She's planted in the wilderness. The false church is planted in the wilderness, saints. The true people of God must never allow themselves to be planted in the wilderness. We've got to be ready and laboring always to be coming up out of the wilderness. But that's a perfect parallel with that Revelation 17, 1, where it says she sitteth upon many waters, isn't it? Almost every time you hear the phrase many waters, it's used in the negative context. There's only one that I can think of type of usage of that phrase many waters that's positive. Almost always when it talks about many waters, it's talking about all the carnal world of mankind, the sea of mankind, this big carnal mess of mankind. When it's used in a positive way, it's used as the voice of God, interestingly enough. It says his voice is like the voice of many waters. You know what I think God's saying when he makes those kind of statements? All the whole world crying out isn't as powerful, isn't as strong. But there's a lot of examples of it being, I'll just give you a couple, where that many waters is used in this kind of a way. When David in the 18th Psalm was talking about the terrible conditions he was going through, he said, God sent from above and he took me and drew me out of many waters. He did that for each one of us if he saved us, didn't he? You know, he sent from above, literally, he sent his son from above. He reached down and took a hold of us and saved us out of many waters. We'd all be drowning in the darkness of this world if God hadn't reached down and saved us. Psalms 93, 5 is one of my favorite passages that uses this kind of language when it says, The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters, yea, than the mighty waves of the sea. The whole world is not as powerful as our one God. 
Song of Solomon 8.7 is where it says, many waters cannot quench love. I'm telling you, if you really have the love of the Lord, the whole world won't be able to quench that. It says, neither can the floods drown it. Now that's an interesting statement, considering later in the 12th chapter of the book of Revelation, it talks about a flood coming out of the mouth of the serpent that was intended to drown that woman. But God protected her from that. In Jeremiah 51, you could read all through that, but in the 13th verse, it refers to Babylon as the one who dwelleth upon many waters. That's a perfect parallel with Revelation 17.1. So there's one woman in the wilderness who is that unclean harlot. That's one of the women. The other woman in the wilderness is the true people of God. Now, the true people of God were not always some big church. Sometimes it was just a handful, a little remnant down through history, just like it was with Israel. That's why I keep saying you need to understand that Israel, as the people of God in the Old Testament period, is a parallel with the church as the people of God in the New Testament period. There's times that most of Israel was in idolatry and darkness, and there were just a little remnant. You know the example we've been using quite a lot is the example of Elijah's day when it looked like there was hardly anybody that was standing for God. Almost all of Israel had turned against God. Of course, he finds out in the 19th chapter that there were 7,000 men that were still standing for God in Israel. But Elijah hadn't even met any of them to his knowledge at that point, or at least Elijah didn't recognize that at that point. He didn't realize it. But that tells you right there that given the fact there were probably a million people that were in Israel... If God says there's 7,000, that's a tiny number, isn't it? That means that the vast majority of what called itself Israel was not the Israel of God. Is that simple enough? Many times in Israel's history, it was like that, where almost the entire nation was polluted with idolatry. They were not God's people. They were in name. They were descendants of God's people, but they were not living up to their heritage. There were some of them who held on to God. I use this example quite often too. This is in Ezekiel 14, where he's talking about how terrible the day was that he was preparing to judge in terms of Judah, that even if the three righteous men that he named, at least in the list, Noah, Daniel, and Job, he said, if Noah, Daniel, and Job were alive right now, as mighty and righteous as those men were, the only people they'd be able to save would be themselves. That's what he said. He said, Noah, Daniel, and Job are the only ones who'd be able to be saved. This day is so dark. That tells you that almost every single person that was Israel was not Israel. It was a false religious group of individuals and only a tiny little number. That's how it's been sometimes in the history of the church. There's times when almost the whole church was polluted. Certainly during the Dark Ages, the vast majority of the church was polluted. I think there were good and godly people in the middle of that polluted condition. That's a sad commentary, isn't it? God does have an opportunity to touch you if you're, if you're not in in a false church, but in there you're indoctrinated to where it's hard for anybody to get next to you. That's true, Brother Lee. It's hard to wake up in a church where everybody's asleep. Who's going to wake you up? Who's going to wake you up? The ministry's asleep. When the blind lead the blind, where do they end up? Are the blind going to lead you to the light? They can't see it themselves. In the 25th chapter of Matthew, there's five wise and five foolish virgins. You realize those five foolish virgins are a far step up from this church we're talking about, this false church? That's not the true church versus the false church. That's the church where there's people who are not living at the level they ought to be. They're not spiritually aware and awake to their situation. And they're resting on their laurels, so to speak. They're falling asleep. They're still in a lot higher place than that church. They're virgins, you know. She's not. She's a harlot. 
So even the five foolish virgins are better off than she is, even though they fell asleep. Because she's sleeping the sleep of death. That's a difference. You can get woken up if you're not sleeping the sleep of death. It's going to take God to wake her up. And he's not going to wake her up. What he'll do is wake up people that are trapped in her house. There's a lot of good and godly and precious people trapped in that woman's house. They don't understand they're trapped in her house. They think it's a beautiful place. And it's pretty. Remember how she's attired. Read the 17th chapter. Gold and pearls. It's a beautiful place. It's regal. Massive buildings and architecture and other things and the regalia of it and all the ritual of it. And you're in the house of the harlot. But they don't know they're in the house of the harlot. God in heaven, wake them up. Let them hear a voice, see? I believe the same kind of voice that woke up the wise virgins. You know they were asleep too, right? You know all the virgins in that story were asleep. Sometimes we read through stories like that and kind of blend the story together and think, well, there's some that are waking us. No, no, they all fell asleep. The difference was the wise virgins were prepared and the foolish were not prepared. They all fell asleep, but somebody was still awake because somebody, it wasn't the bridegroom. The only people who can hear the voice of the bridegroom are the ones that are awake. Now listen, here's why. Somebody said, behold, the bridegroom cometh. When that call went out, all of them woke, but not all of them were ready. They were all virgins, but some had not prepared themselves for the coming of the Lord. They thought we can just sit and wait it out. And listen, this is exactly how some Christians think. He'll give us everything he needs when he comes. No, he won't. You're going to need to be ready for him. They had to have their lamps trimmed. They had to have enough oil in their lamps. They had to have all the things they needed to be ready for when he came. Some Christians have this idea, well, grace and mercy just means that no matter where my life is at when the Lord returns, he'll bring all the ingredients I'm missing right when he shows up. No, he won't. That's not how it works. There's a process that's going to have to happen. Those foolish virgins were not ready for his coming. The wise were. Now, I believe the foolish virgins will get to be a part, but they weren't part of that first fruits element. That shows you there's waves to it, so to speak, and that gets into some very deep issues. But you notice they were all virgins. They all heard the call, but not all of them were ready. And not all of them got to leave with the bridegroom because they weren't all ready. Now, coming back to this issue, those foolish virgins, as much as people rail on them how foolish they were, they weren't prepared, they didn't have their lamps trimmed, they didn't have enough oil, they were on a much higher level than this woman. This harlot is on a much lower level in terms of her spiritual place. So there's always been a righteous remnant, whether you're talking about Israel, whether you're talking about the church, there's always been a righteous remnant and there's always been a false group. Usually the false group is the largest group. Isn't that true historically? Now let's go back to Revelation 12. In Revelation 12, 6, it says, The woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God. God prepared her a place there. She didn't build it herself. The false church built a house in the wilderness on the sand. Another scripture I'm thinking about in Jeremiah where he talked about if I just had a lodging place in the wilderness. He was longing for a place. This is in the time when Judah was getting ready to get judged by Nebuchadnezzar's armies and taken into captivity. And they wouldn't listen to Jeremiah. No matter how much he preached them, they would not listen to him. And at one point he says, I wish I just had a lodging place in the wilderness so I could get away from all these folks. That's what he was saying. If I could just leave Judah entirely, go out in the wilderness and have a place where I could live, a tent out there, I'd be a happy man. I may come back to that verse. But you know God did prepare her a place. 
He had a place. He knew he was going to let her go into the wilderness. He had a place for her there. And they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days. Now those days we believe are prophetic days. They're years. That isn't three and a half literal years. That's twelve hundred and sixty years. At least how we presently believe it. Now you go down eight verses. This is the same exact thing. This is where it repeats itself. This is exactly the same events, repeated with a little bit more detail. It says, And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place, where she's nourished for a time, times, and half a time. That's three and a half, 1260, from the face of the serpent. Now, if you want to get the context, we've been talking about that, but I'm going to quickly read through the verses that lead up to this to show you some of the background. The first verse of Revelation 12 says, There appeared a great wonder in heaven. This is the early church. This is the new covenant working through the early church. I've heard people argue back and forth, this woman's the new covenant. This woman's Jerusalem, which is above. This woman's the church. It's all of those things. It's the new covenant working in and through the church. There appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet. And I already told you, the sun there represents the new covenant, the moon, the old covenant. I mean the Old Testament. Upon her head, a crown of 12 stars. That represents the fact that apostolic government was there, the 12 apostles. And she being with child cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. I'm not going to get into the details of that here because that's not the context of this discussion. But there appeared another wonder in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. The dragon stood afore the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought in his angels, and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. Now, by the way, this is coming up to a climax, and then it's going to repeat itself. So this isn't two different climaxes. This is going to be the same climax here in a minute. It says, The great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world, He was cast out of the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. There's been a war in heaven going on for some time, and it's still going on. When Satan is finally and fully cast out of the heavenly realm, I mean forever, that he could never operate in the religious realm at all ever again, then that war is going to end. At least there'll be a period when it'll end. You know when that's going to happen, don't you? It's just a few chapters later in Revelation, the beginning of the 20th chapter, that mighty angel comes down from heaven with that great chain and binds Satan for a thousand years, doesn't he? He can't fight when he's bound. You know why? He's not just bound and able to swing. He's put in a bottomless pit. Shut up. A seal's put upon him. He's put in a bottomless pit. He has no place to stand and operate or do anything else for a thousand years until he's released at the end of that time. And then the rest of the chapter isn't just a continuation chronologically. It has some repetition of what we just heard. Twelfth verse says, Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devils come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. The woman that brought forth the man-child was that church. That church was being persecuted. 
And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place, where she's nourished for a time, times, and half a time from the face of the serpent. Those two wings of a great eagle, I've heard a couple different possible interpretations for what that represents. Some have said it was the truth. These two wings right here, truth of the Old and the New Covenant, the Old and the New Testament, the biblical truth. Some have said it was the Word of God and the Spirit of God, and I've heard other possibilities as well. But she was given some spiritual provision to allow her to fly into the wilderness and to be nourished there. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. That's that remnant I'm talking about that went on through the wilderness which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. You know how simple that is? You want to know how you can recognize someone that's a remnant of the seed? You've got to really know who God is. You've got to really know who Jesus is. That's part of keeping the testimony of Christ. When you testify to who Jesus is, you know who Jesus is. You can't really testify to him if you don't know who he is. People who really know who he is, and by knowing who he is, you're going to have to know who God the Father is. And then you've got to keep the commandments of God. That's pretty strong. That means if you're an unfaithful Christian, you may not be part of the remnant of that seed. You've got to be faithful to your faith. You've got to have the right faith. That's the testimony of Christ. And then you've got to be faithful to that faith. That's keeping the commandments of God. See how both are there? That's the remnant of the seed of that woman. The people of God that have the true faith and are keeping the faith are the remnant of the seed of that woman. That woman went to the wilderness and she was just about drowned under that flood of false doctrine that was spewed out of the mouth of the dragon. That doctrine came out of the mouthpiece of that false church. That just about drowned that woman. If you were living in a day like that where that was the only thing being taught and you were given no other choice and you couldn't even have access to a Bible, you'd be drowned in false doctrine, wouldn't you? That flood came out of his mouth, but you realize the earth swallowed it up. You know who swallowed it up? There's a lot of different views of who that could be, but I'll tell you who part of it was. There were a lot of people in that ancient world that just took that doctrine in. They just swallowed it up. When something that is tainted and impure gets put into the ground, what you won't see is good fruit coming up. Isn't it interesting it says the earth? Because when you put something into the earth, you're expecting that something's going to come out, right? You put a seed into the earth, it'll produce something, right? The earth swallowed up all that flood. You know how I think that woman knew what was truth and what was not? They watched and saw what it produced. The earth that sucked in that flood, what kind of fruit came up out of that earth after it sucked that in? Was it the fruits of the Spirit? Was it immorality and carnality and other things that are the fruits of unrighteousness? If you read the context of Galatians 5, where nine of the fruit of the Spirit are listed, right before that it talks about the works of unrighteousness. And they're pretty rough. You know what I think that woman saw? She saw the list that precedes the fruit of the Spirit. All that horrible immorality and other things that church was producing. And she looked at that and said, that cannot be the true people of God. You realize that protected her? Because when the earth swallowed up and then started to produce foul and evil things out of what they had swallowed, she could look at that and say, that isn't the truth. That's not right. It can't be right. Look what it's producing. Now, there's a lot more to it than that, but that'll get you started thinking about it. She martyred anybody that dared to stand against her false doctrine or polluted order. Notice that it says the dragon made war with the remnant of her seed. The her there is that righteous woman, that church. Those people that were holding on to the truths of the early church, that beastly power and that satanic influence behind it did everything in its power 
Listen, this is what happened in the Dark Ages when that church was trying to kill every single person who dared to question its authority, dared to question its doctrine. Whether they realized it or not, and I doubt most of them realized it, I think most of them really honestly believed they were in the right, as sad as that is. Paul believed he was in the right when he was delivering up Christians, didn't he? He didn't think he was doing evil. He thought he was doing God's work. You read some of their biographies and other things. I'm not questioning that they didn't believe they were godly people. There were some of them that really probably believed they were godly while they were murdering the children of God. They were certain they were godly, some of them. I think some of them were foul as could be. And you can find plenty of historical examples of them in that church, leaders at the highest level. But I think there were people that were truly people that believed in God and Christ, but did not understand. They had been so polluted by that flood that came out of the mouth of the serpent that all they could produce was evil works. They didn't realize what they had swallowed was a drink from the golden cup full of abominations. That's what that flood out of the mouth of the serpent was, taking a drink from that cup. Trying to use the Bible as a vessel to put your false doctrine inside of it. Pseudo-Christian individuals do it all the time right now. They use the Bible and say, it says in the Bible, da 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 It doesn't say anything like that in the Bible. They twist and pervert the scripture to make it support some false doctrinal view. That is taking a golden cup and filling it with abominations. I really believe, I honestly believe, saints, many of them were convinced what we're doing is what God wants us to do while they were committing evils and murdering God's people doing it. So here's the remnant of the seed of that woman. The remnant of the seed of that woman was this minority group of people down through the Dark Ages, and even in our day, it's a minority group of people, saints, who that woman has persecuted and she'll persecute again. You know what kept her from dying of hunger, though, during the time she was in the wilderness? The God of heaven provided for her. He had a place prepared for her, didn't he? He protected her. He directed her. Children of Israel, when they were wandering through the wilderness, it's reiterated in that 78th Psalm a number of things about the kind of spirit in a bad way, the kind of attitude the children of Israel had in the wilderness. One of the things they said, it's a statement that should have been able to be answered yes, but it was actually kind of a challenge, they said. It's in that 19th verse. He says, they spake against God and they said, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? What a horrible thing to say. They weren't asking it honestly. They were saying it sarcastically. He can't do that. You know, God did furnish a table in the wilderness. You know, we're not all the way out of the wilderness right now, and there's still a table that's been spread. And you and I can still eat from the table of the Lord right now, even though we're on our way out of the wilderness. We're not fully out. I don't believe the church has come all the way out of the wilderness yet. We're coming out of the wilderness. In order to come out of the wilderness, you're going to have to have the right kind of spirit that says, I need to find out what the truth is. I need to be seeking for the things of God and not just settling. Because you're never going to come out of the wilderness if you settle in the wilderness. That's why we're still seeking. And we don't feel like we have everything. We don't have all the truth. We're not doing everything exactly as it ought to be done. If I knew everything, I'd tell you. I don't. If I knew exactly how every single thing ought to be done, we'd be doing it that way, saints. Whether we liked it or not. Because why would you want to do something different than what ought to be done? Saints, we're seeking the right path. We're seeking that old way. Wherein is the good path. That old way. There's an old way. It goes all the way back to the early church. And there's a path when you enter into that way that you can follow that'll lead you to eternal life and immortality, saints. It'll lead you right back to the throne of God. I don't want to be on any other path, do you? I don't want to get out in the broad way. There's a broad way, saints. There's a broad way. There's another thing you can read in the Song of Solomon. In that fifth chapter, it's a picture and before that as well of that condition of that church in that day. It says she went about the city seeking her beloved. You know what that city was? She was wandering around and looking for her beloved, that church. She went about the city seeking her beloved. She could not find him. 
You know why? You couldn't find Jesus there. They had replaced Jesus with their order and their ritual, their priesthood. You know what it said? It said, the watchmen of the city found me and they beat me. You know, that's exactly what that church did to those people. The people that were earnestly seeking for Jesus and could not find him in that polluted church, they got beat and murdered for it. It's not a positive statement, but it's pretty positive when you look at the end of that 12th chapter of Revelation. It doesn't sound positive when it says he persecuted the remnant of her seed. But you know what it tells you when it says he persecuted the remnant of her seed? There still was a remnant. This is where people seriously misunderstand the meaning of Jesus' statement. When he said, upon this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I've heard people say, well, whatever church developed out of that church had to be the church that the gates of hell couldn't prevail against. In other words, whatever called itself the church must be the church the gates of hell couldn't prevail against. Well, then he was wrong because the gates of hell prevailed against that church. But there were always a people. There has always been a people who the gates of hell could not prevail against, saints. That's the church. It's not that big monolithic church in the dark ages. The gates of hell certainly prevailed against that mess of false doctrine and idolatry. It was a gate of hell. You realize that? You're entering into death and hell going into that system. It was a gate of hell. The gates of hell prevailed against it, but that wasn't his church. His church still exists. His church has never died. There's always been a remnant of the seed of that woman alive in the earth. I don't believe there's ever been a time in history there were not people on this earth who were faithfully serving God. That's all that means. We're not talking about a little denomination somewhere. I think there were pockets of people that certainly did not have all the truth. But there were always a people who loved the God of heaven more than anything else, had a knowledge of Christ. There's the two key ingredients, the testimony of Christ and the commandments of God. They wanted nothing more than to be obedient to God, and they had a knowledge of God and Christ. That has always existed down through history. I believe we're part of the remnant of our seed right now. I hope we are, saints. Don't you hope we're part of the remnant of our seed, not part of the harlot? God help us, saints. I believe, listen, I believe it, and I think you do too. I believe this church is part of the remnant of the seed of that woman. Let's be faithful to that calling. Let's be worthy of that. Remember what I quoted from Song of Solomon 6, where it says she's the only one of her mother, a choice one. One of these days, that's going to be true again. It's not really true completely yet, because God is still bringing together one people. But one of these days, they're just going to be one church. One people that are all the true people of God. They are standing on the moon and they're clothed with the sun. Once again, there's going to be a crown of stars on that head of that church. I believe there's going to be apostles again, like there were apostles in the early church. There'll be a crown of stars on the head of that church. I don't know if it'd be a crown of 12 stars, you know, in the sense of 12 apostles. Some people think there'll be seven because of that little hint in Revelation 10 when it says that that one that roared like a lion after he roared out his message, the seven thunders uttered their voices. Some think that that means those seven thunders are going to be the seven great apostolic leaders in the last day, maybe. What else do I want to add to this before we close here? I was talking about this lodging place that she has in the wilderness. That's in Jeremiah 9. You could read through that chapter, but the second and third verse is what's on my mind. He says there, Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place of wayfaring men. How's this for a harsh thing to say? That I might leave my people. That doesn't sound nice, does it? Problem is all of his people had become adulterated. All of his people were worshiping idols. All of his people were rejecting the word of the Lord. His people, his natural kindred in Judah and Benjamin and Levi that were in the southern part of Israel that I might leave my people and go from them, for they be all adulterers, an assembly of treacherous men. 
This is what Jeremiah was feeling when Israel was falling away from God. And almost all of them were getting ready to go into Babylon, go into captivity to Babylon for 70 years. You realize that the vast majority of that entire population were never coming back from Babylon for two different reasons? What are they? They're pretty obvious. One of them's real obvious. 70 years should be a clue. Death. What else? Well, you'd have to study your Bible and find out how many actually are recorded as coming back. Do you realize one of the groups that came back was only around 42,360 people? That is nothing compared to how many went. That means that many were going to die in Babylon and never come home. Many of them were going to get comfortable in Babylon and live there the rest of their lives. But only a small group were going to come back from Babylon to restore. That's the word we've been talking about. We're talking about Judah now, but this is a parallel again with the church. There was going to be a remnant that would leave Babylon to go back to restore. If we keep on this subject, we may just have to go through the book of Haggai. It's a very short book, but there are some of the most powerful and beautiful prophetic statements about the restoration of Israel and the restoration of the church hidden in that language, that book. If we do, we'll go verse by verse through that. But notice what he says here. They be all adulterers. That's a pretty strong thing to say, isn't it? Everywhere I look, it's just adulterers. And they're an assembly of treacherous men. That's what the church was like when it fell away too. I'll bet there were people in that church who didn't have any idea where they could go. And they're saying, I wish I had a lodging place in the wilderness. I'd get away from these folks because they're not true people of God. They're unclean. Their doctrine's false. You know, God did make a lodging place in the wilderness. That's the point I'm getting at. God provided a place for her. There was still a, a people in the wilderness that was that other woman in the wilderness. There were two women. He says, and they bend their tongues like their bow for lies. But what a terrible statement. They are not valiant for the truth upon the earth. Do you know one of the quickest things that will destroy a people? It's not false doctrine. It's silence in the face of false doctrine. You know, that's what was going on here in Israel. And it's what was going on when the church fell away. I don't doubt for a second there weren't a lot of people who knew their scripture that when that church started teaching some of those doctrines, they said, that's not right. But they knew I could lose my life if I challenged that. And they didn't. They were not valiant for the truth. They didn't have enough courage to stand for the truth. We better have enough courage to stand for the truth, saints. If you silently allow false doctrine to take control, the generations to come won't know anything but false doctrine. It's why some of the things taught in the three and four and five hundreds AD are still being taught today as if they are Bible truth when there's nothing that's true about some of those things. It's not what the Bible says, but it's been taught generation after generation. That poison has been passed down of some of those teachings. Men stood there knowing it's wrong, but they were not valiant for the truth. They knew that's not right. But listen, after they made some of those decisions, I mentioned this in one of our past classes. Several of the doctrinal decisions they made in some of those councils, after the council, the emperor sent out letters essentially threatening imprisonment or death on anybody that tried to challenge the decision of that council. And many of those people standing there knew it was false doctrine, but they were not valiant for the truth. They quietly let the church swallow the flood of that serpent. That church swallowed the flood that came out of the serpent's mouth. The proof that that wasn't the woman in the wilderness is the fact that that woman in the wilderness did not swallow the flood. The earth swallowed that flood. All those pagan individuals that were in that church, they just took it in. Sounds good. Sounds a lot like our pagan religion. You know, Constantine, after he supposedly was Christianized, was still releasing coins. I have one. Still releasing coins with the slogan on them. It had a strange looking little man with what looked like a fiery halo on his head. 
And it says under it, sol invictus in Latin. You know what sol invictus means in Latin? The unconquerable sun. That was the sun god. He was still worshiping the sun god. After he became a Christian, you know why? That's who he thought Jesus was. He was so confused on his issues on the Godhead. I mean, years after he moderated the Council of Nicaea, he was issuing coins that said Sol Invictus. I have one. I can show it to you. And the date was after the Council of Nicaea. What does that tell you? That church became paganized with some of those beliefs. The remnant of the seed isn't to swallow that flood, are they? He says, they are not valiant for the truth upon the earth. We better be valiant for the truth. We better be courageous enough to stand for the truth. For they proceed from evil to evil, and they know not me, saith the Lord. So that woman that went in the wilderness has to come back out of the wilderness. I said that, and I'm going to close with that. The two verses that allude to that in the Song of Solomon that are so beautiful. Remember now, the 12th chapter of Revelation tells us this, this great and godly woman that represented that church went in the wilderness. I think in the wilderness, that church transitioned because it was mother to daughter, you know. So by the time that remnant came out of the wilderness, it was the daughter of that woman that was coming out of the wilderness. You understand? It was the daughter of the first woman. We're the daughter of that church. I believe we've got a legacy that goes back to the early church. We have cast our spiritual anchor all the way back to that church and anchored ourselves to it. And that's the line we want to be connected to is back to that early church, not to a denomination that was established along the line, all the way down past through the halls of history and anchored back to the bedrock of that early church. There's so much more we could say on this, but I want to try to close. So I'll give you the two scriptures in the Song of Solomon that I referenced earlier. One of them is in the third chapter of the Song of Solomon that appears to be talking about Jesus. It says, Who is this that cometh out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense and all the powders of the merchant? All those things are symbolic. Myrrh and frankincense represents the word and the spirit perfumed with myrrh and frankincense. That could be Jesus. That could be talking about Jesus' church coming out of the wilderness. But the eighth chapter is very clear. Fifth verse says, Who is this that cometh out of the wilderness leaning upon her beloved? You know who her beloved is, don't you? That's Jesus Christ our Lord. There's a church that's going to come out of the wilderness. You know how she's going to get out of the wilderness? Not because she's leaned on the arm of the flesh. Not because she's leaning on her traditions that that church passed down to her. Leaning on the arm of her beloved. That church created a lot of traditions and rituals and hierarchy that were not biblical and were very evil. She's not going to lean on those things. She's going to come out of there and go looking for Jesus, just like this precious same woman in the Song of Solomon a little earlier, I told you, that's wandering around the city. Where is my beloved? I can't find him here. I can't find him in this house. I can't find him in this church. Talking about that false church. You know, it says she went out in the broad ways looking for him. And she found him not. You're not going to find him in the broad ways. He's in the narrow way. Who is this that cometh up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? That is a prophetic statement about the church coming up out of the wilderness. The church is not strong enough to come out of the wilderness by itself. But if we lean on our beloved, if we depend on Jesus, he will restore the church back to exactly what he intends it to be. And that's exactly at the heart of the subject we're talking about. And I'll tell you, Sister Wilma, I'm going to keep on touching on your question because I've got a lot more answers to it than I've given. Your question was, what will draw people to the church? I'm going to tell you a church that's truly leaning on the arm of her beloved. Truly leaning on the arm of her beloved. There'll be a spirit in a church like that that people will find very hard to resist. I want our church to be like that. I want people to touch this church. and I don't want to be anywhere else. 
That's a church that's leaning on the arm of her beloved. And if she's leaning on the arm of her beloved, I want to go where she's going. Remember what Ruth said to Naomi? Whither you go, I'll go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I'll die. And there will I be buried. Praise his holy name.